Hi, and welcome to the second location. And this is the only second location where you can find me, your host, Holly. We are continuing on with our exploration into the Florida furniture store murders and the unjust conviction of Tommy Ziegler. I'm not going to do a real recap here, so please, just go listen to all the other episodes on Tommy Ziegler. We are so deep into this thing by now that you can't just pick it up from here. This isn't Mary Worth. So today I'm talking about pre-trial motions leading up to the trial. So Tommy's trial was scheduled to begin on June 1st, but Terry Hadley, that's Tommy's chief attorney, he requested a later trial date of June 21st. The defense, they simply weren't ready to go to trial. And this later trial date was still within the bounds of Florida's speedy trial deadlines. It's just really a 20-day extension from the trial's originally scheduled start date. So this is not a big extension that the man is asking for. I mean, it's 20 days. It's, it's very little. It's less than three weeks. But the prosecutor, now his name is Egan, he objected to this extension. The prosecutor argued that the FBI witnesses were prepared to testify on June 1st. And that because this was already scheduled with the FBI, the trial couldn't be delayed. Now, it's true, when the FBI labs are used to process forensic evidence, scheduling issues can arise more frequently than when state labs are used or local labs. And the FBI personnel, they are not subject to subpoena like local lab personnel, so it's not like the FBI can be forced to testify. I mean, it just sounds like a load of bullshit to me. Personally, I think the state used the fact that the FBI was involved with the trial to have more control over the trial and witness availability. And this is like a manipulation that really shouldn't exist. I don't think the gatekeeper on access to the FBI uh, on setting up when they're available and things of that nature, I don't think that should go through the prosecution. Logistically speaking, I think this is something, it's related to the trial, the date of the trial. I think this is something that should change. I think that judges and their tip staff and all their staff should be in charge of this. Like, I don't see why if a defense attorney needs to do something with the FBI, I don't see why it has to go through the prosecutor in the prosecution's office for the defense to be able to do that. They're a gatekeeper, and I just don't think one of the sides, the adversaries in the trial process, should be have so much control over the evidence. I mean, if you guys continue listening to this, you're going to hear me expound upon this over time. I just feel like there's something wrong with our judicial system where we have an adversarial process, and one of the adversaries has complete and utter control of all the evidence. That's not right. And that's like this in a way, because right here we have the prosecution is the one that has access and can limit and, you know, really control the flow of events because they're the ones that have the connection to the FBI. Now, I don't think that the state picked the FBI lab on purpose to, to do this, but once they realized that they could control a situation like this, they took advantage and that's what they did because we have the defense saying that they need more time, that they are not prepared for trial. And the state response basically, that that doesn't really matter. The FBI is ready on the 1st of June. So that's when the trial has to begin, regardless of whether the defense is ready. Now, does that sound just to you? When a man's life is at stake, when justice is at stake, isn't it worth it to move the trial 20 days in the interests of the truth? I mean, it's 20 days. It's a reasonable request. To argue against that is to argue against logic to me. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the police sending the forensic evidence to the FBI. Let me get that clear. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And I don't think they did that with um, malicious intent. But this was a decision that the state made. 
not the defense. And I think it's wrong for the state to rely on the unavailability of witnesses to force the defense to go to trial before they are prepared. The defendant should not be penalized because of the decisions made by the state. Tommy Ziegler didn't decide to send that stuff off to the FBI. The state did. Now, if Tommy's team needs more time and there's a problem with the state being able to bring in witnesses, then you take more time and you work that stuff out. You don't rush someone to trial for multiple murder when there's evidence isn't fully prepared. They're still waiting on test results at this point. Okay. I just really feel like the prosecution wanted to rush to trial because I don't think they wanted to face a defense team that was fully prepared because the state doesn't have a strong case. It seems like the goal for the state is to rush to trial to prevent the defense from having enough time to test evidence, to depose witnesses, you know, basically get ready for trial. The defense's motion for a continuance was denied. The judge didn't seem to care that the state delayed handing over evidence to the very last minute. And the defense needed more time because of this. Under Judge Paul's guidance, the trial was going forward, whether the defense was ready or not. I think it's gross for a prosecutor to argue against a short continuance if the other side argues they need more time to prepare. How does that negatively affect the state? Their refusal to allow a continuous just creates an issue for appeal that really could just be avoided by just agreeing to a continuance, especially one like this that wasn't long. It was still within the bounds and the limits of a speedy trial term. So I just don't see the state's motivation here other than we don't want to go up against somebody that's well prepared because we're going to lose because we don't got anything really. But the defense's first motions for a continuance and they also at the same time did a request for a change of venue. Both were denied. In my opinion, the denial of the continuance effectively denied Tommy a fair trial. The venue change, in my opinion, is less important, but I still think it was an error. I mean, I didn't intensely review the amount of media coverage of the murders. I did read a lot of articles, but I can't say for sure exactly how intense the volume of media attention was at this time. But I can only assume that it was really high. I mean, it's a quadruple murder where a successful local businessman stood accused of murder. I mean, that's kind of unusual and newsworthy. And I would think it was getting a lot of local attention. So I do think change of venue is important is important and I do think it should have been granted as the first request. Also, I just don't think that's as important as the continuance because I think change of venue, I I mean, we can see, we'll see as it goes on, the, the effect it has on the, you know, the outcome of the trial. But I think the defense having more time to prepare, I think it definitely could have been a different verdict because they would have had more test results in and they would have had more time just to get the fine detailing of the case put together. But they didn't get that. Um, now I was talking about how much media attention had, you know, kind of riled people up about this case and people were interested in it, of course, but also the murder of Charlie Mays had understandably inflamed the local black community who really felt violated by Tommy, a man who they had thought had been a friend. And then in many people's opinion, you know, Tommy had murdered an attempt to frame an innocent black man for those murders. Tommy, a man who had once moved almost seamlessly through black neighborhoods, hired black people, gave black people personal loans, served as a reference, you know, was a friend. He operated the first white business in the town to extend credit to black customers. And I want to make it known, credit wasn't the same rate as credit given to white folks, which wasn't common in the deep south. I mean, if you're going to give a black person, cre you know, credit back then to buy something, it wasn't going to be at the same rate you were giving to your white customers. I mean, Tommy testified for a black friend when he was being mistreated by the court system. But that was all forgotten pretty quickly. Tommy turned from friend 
to foe in one day. And the black community is part of the jury pool. And this would be a major concern for Tommy's defense team. I can definitely see the defense's argument for a change of venue. There is a lot of validity to that argument. It's such an important issue that defense requests a change of venue again as the trial date nears. After denying the defense's request for a continuance and a change of venue, Judge Paul presided over a hearing on May 20th in which the defense argued for suppressing the items recovered from the furniture store in Tommy's house. Now you might feel like the defense is going to succeed because these were both warrantless searches, but no, Judge Paul, rather predictably on his part, denied the motion to suppress the evidence. Judge Paul ruled that the consent form that Tommy signed the day after the murders, as he was lying in a hospital bed, recovering from emergency surgery, and having just received a dose of morphine, right before he was presented with a consent form, well, which he signed. Well, Judge Paul ruled that Tommy's consent was valid, even though Tommy couldn't even remember signing the form. And Judge Paul found that the warrantless search of the furniture store was also valid under the crime scene exception, which allows for crime scenes to be searched without a warrant. Now, like I said before in earlier episodes, this exception to the warrant requirement was eventually struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court just a few years after Tommy's trial. And again, at this hearing, Tommy's attorney again argued that the prosecution's slow release of evidence to the defense was hindering the defense's ability to prepare for trial. The defense told the judge that the state had not turned over all of the evidence to the defense. This was delaying the defense's independent testing of evidence. I want to emphasize that this was 11 days before the trial was set to start and the state is still holding back evidence from the defense. But again, the judge refuses to allow the defense more time. But at the May 20th hearing, the defense did come away with a victory. The judge ordered the state to turn over the remaining evidence to the defense. You know, 11 days before the trial is to begin. It's sad that getting something that should have been done without an argument, without delay, you know, the release of evidence to the defense. I mean, it's sad that's considered a victory, but that's how bad things got for the defense team. That getting access to the evidence was a win for them. The following day, May 21st, after an exchange I talked about earlier with the sheriff's, you know, department refused to release Edward Williams' pants to the defense and the prosecutor had to intervene, the defense finally gets its hands on Edward Williams' trousers and sends them off to the lab. The defense wants to know if there is gunshot residue in the front pants pocket. If found, this would support Williams' statement that Tommy handed him the recently fired gun, you know, the murder weapon, in the rear of the parking lot, and that Edward Williams then placed that gun in his pocket and ran from the parking lot. And, you know, flood the scene. If there is no gunshot residue in that pocket, it means Edward Williams never put that gun in that pocket. This casts doubt on Williams' description of that night, and it raises the question of whether Williams changed clothes before he went to the police. That maybe he got rid of the bloody clothes that he had on at the murder scene, and it suggests that he gave the police a completely different outfit. Sadly, due to the state's delay in handing over the pants, the tests were not finished before the trial ended. Like the defense said, they did need more time. The defense never got that time. But after the trial, the results are in, and the tests show that Edward Williams' pants pockets contained no gunshot residue. Looks to me like that gun was never in that pocket. Maybe he was just happy to see me. <laughs> Ugh. But more importantly, it looks like Williams didn't turn over the clothes he was actually wearing that night. And I can understand why. 
They just might have been covered in blood. Now, I mentioned this briefly in the last episode. The nine days before the trial, the defense moved to have Judge Paul recuse himself and step down as the judge of the trial. The motion included an affidavit from Mary Van Dieter. Remember, she is the wife of the judge who was throwing the party on Christmas Eve that night that Tommy Eunice were scheduled to attend. In the affidavit, she stated, quote, Judge Paul's courtroom demeanor, his voice, and manner showed prejudice against the defendant. And she had been attending all these hearings. So she's... She's been a good eyewitness to the proceeding. Tommy's lawyer, Terry Hadley, felt that Judge Paul was visibly hostile to him. Beyond the fact that the judge was denying basically all of the defense's motions, the judge isn't even trying to hide his disdain for the defendant. And this has the potential to have a massive impact on a jury and how they view the defendant. If the judge hates the defendant, the jury will hate the defendant. But Judge Paul denied the motion to recuse. On June 1st, the day the trial was to start and jury selection begin, the defense again requested a continuance. This is the day the trial is set to start. We're starting here and they're still saying, we need more time. They weren't ready. Lab results hadn't even come in yet, but these requests for more time were denied just like the others and jury selection began. On June 4th, prosecutor offered to agree to a change of venue if the defense waived the right to a speedy trial. Jury selection was not going smooth because so many people already knew about this case, so they were having a hard time. Now, according to Fatal Flaw, the judge reluctantly granted a change of venue to another county. Get that. The judge was reluctant to agree to the change of venue, even though the prosecution wasn't opposing the change. But the judge just wasn't willing to concede anything to the defense. After the judge finally agreed to the change of venue, the defense again requested a continuance. I mean, they're moving the trial to another county. This is going to take more time for the defense. But the judge, he just wasn't seeing it that way. And the trial was set to proceed in its new location on June 8th. There would be no continuance. Tommy had waived his right to a speedy trial, and he had gotten very little in return. The defense would get no extra time. Now, I know this sounds confusing. Why didn't the defense waive the right to a speedy trial earlier? If they need more time, why why now? Trials basically commenced. Jury selection has commenced. Why, why waive now when you wouldn't do it before? I mean, I can see it's a little bit confusing, maybe. I mean, I would have probably waived the right to a speedy trial earlier and asked for more time. But I know this judge would have likely denied it anyway, so, you know, that could have been the wrong move. And I have the benefit of knowing the results of the trial. I'm pretty sure Tommy was eager to go to trial. You know, remove this cloud from over his head to prove his innocence and then have time to properly grieve the loss of his wife. Tommy seemed to have a lot of faith in the judicial system, and I think it wasn't unfounded. I mean, up until that Christmas Eve, Tommy had led, you know, a pretty charmed life. Things came easy for him. He was wealthy, smart, well-connected in his community, with parents and a wife that loved him. I'm sure he thought the system would work, because so far, it had worked for him in his young life. But it is the role of his lawyer to explain the stakes and the reality of what is online. But I think it would have been a tough you know, real tough to convince Tommy to waive his right to a speedy trial. But an earlier waiver, I mean, that might have helped him. I get the feeling that Tommy just thought the truth would win out and that justice would prevail. I mean, if Tommy was guilty of anything, I think it wasn't being naive. In my opinion, the state was eager to get to trial. They weren't going to violate Tommy's speedy trial rights. The state wanted to rush to trial. They had almost no evidence, just a testimony of individuals that, you know, may have been involved in the crime. And the state didn't want the defense 
to have enough time to fully prepare. So I just don't think, I understand not wanting to give up the idea of if they don't bring them to trial within this time period, it's done. Case dismissed with prejudice. Never again can he be charged. I understand that's something that's huge to lose, but it's a huge right to waive. But I just don't think there was any chance of them ever violating his right to a speedy trial. So I think you're waiving something. He'd be waiving something that really wasn't going to happen. But um, maybe it would have. I don't know. I mean, you look back at these things and it's hard to tell. But I think, I don't think there's any, I didn't think, I didn't see anything to me where it looked like that was, he wasn't going to be brought to trial in time. It could be argued, and I think this is legitimate, that the state wanted to face an unprepared defense, that it was actually a strategy for the state, really. The forensics hadn't come back in their favor, and they didn't want the defense to have more time to do their own independent testing that could cast even more doubt on the state's theory and their case. I mean, it makes sense. The state is always arguing against the defense's request for a continuance. I mean, or even worse, what if there was a verbal agreement with the FBI, you know, about the testing of Edward Williams' pants and the FBI had already tested the pants and knew that there was no gunshot residue on them, but never made a report of their findings. So there was nothing on paper that the state could be forced to hand over to the defense in discovery. You know, and so maybe the state knew the results to that test. And that's why they were so clinging to those pants, lying about where they were. Oh, you know what? Now that I think back about it, they lied and said that the FBI had the pants but they actually never had left state custody. Oh, this is actually me. Oh, guys, right here, light bulb above my head. So I don't, there wouldn't, could never have been an agreement with the FBI to hide that. I wonder if there was an agreement with the state lab or a local lab or some, some other place that was holding those pants. I just, in the back of my mind, the way they held onto those pants to the last second, doing everything they could just to get another moment to delay just a day. Oh, we cranked an extra day where they couldn't get it. You know, to give them such a short amount of time to actually do the testing. I just, as part of me just thinks they knew the results. They knew what was going to come back on those pants. And that's why they were clinging to those things, you know, so desperately with their little clawing hands. But, um, yeah, it makes you wonder. So no, the FBI couldn't have been, couldn't have had a secret deal with that. Because from my understanding of the evidence, the pants never actually went to the FBI. But still, the prosecution, the state could have had the local lab. I don't know what their local labs were like back then or a state lab, but there were other places they could have been tested, definitely. And, you know, a little cover up or, you know, a little deceit, maybe. Is that too hard of a term? I mean, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I'm accusing them of maybe knowing, having conducted tests and done something shady to hide the test results from the from the defense team. So, you know, so they're doing something shady, I think, potentially with those pants. My point is that the defense, they needed more time. And I think they asked for a continuance formally on five or six occasions that I could find, all of which were denied. But why? I mean, when is being in a hurry more important than justice? Anyway, the trial is moved to Jacksonville, but it really didn't help the defense much. Jacksonville is in Duval County, and the area where the prospective jurors were drawn from was predominantly black. Now, typically in the 1970s, and even today, in my opinion, in a criminal case, the defense will usually like to have black people on the jury. And the reason is twofold. First, black people are less likely to blindly believe the police and just generally more likely question authority. And black people were also more likely to have either been accused of a crime or had a friend or a loved one accused of a crime. You know, perhaps one they didn't commit. And black people tend to have a better understanding that, you know, that just because someone is charged with a crime, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are guilty. But in this case, that type of thinking doesn't apply at all. 
a rich white man is accused of murdering an incredibly popular black man and trying to frame the murdered black man and two other black men for the murder of his whole, you know, white family. Tommy just isn't going to be popular in the minority community any longer. The jury the defense is looking for in a trial like this is going to be composed of, you know, independent thinkers, someone who questions authority, people that are either educated or just plain smart, so they can understand the lack of actual evidence that the prosecution is putting forward. And here in this case, especially the defense, is looking for a stubborn person, someone that could be a holdout, someone that could hang the jury. And even though this is 1976, Tommy's defense had advice on jury selection from a psychologist he was actually one of the defense lawyers knew this guy from college they had been students together and the recommendations were basically very basically what i all just said they were the things that all lawyers realize but it's how you recognize these people doing voir dire that is the art of jury selection remember that people aren't necessarily being honest in these questionnaires in these situations you know people tend to paint themselves in a more favorable light when they are questioned in front of others and the prosecution seems to want the opposite they want the opposite jury than what the defense wants, which is usually the case. I mean, the prosecution, I mean, they rejected a scientist and a man who had been in the military. And this man, the military man, had been involved in court-martial hearings. I mean, typically, these two would be the prosecution's ideal juror. But they rejected both men. They were too smart too knowledgeable. The prosecution didn't want an intelligent jury that could see through their case, who could see there was very little evidence against Tommy, other than the statements of two men, you know, that could have been coerced or, you know, self-serving. It's sad when the prosecution realizes that they don't want an intelligent jury. It means you don't have a case. You hope to find 12 people that don't realize it. The jury that sat in judge of Tommy Ziegler it was composed of three men and nine women, which is not unusual for a, a long trial back then. They needed people that either didn't work or could get extended time off of work. Generally speaking, 1970s, more women back then were stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home wives. So it is common that you would see more women on longer trials. By race, they were split evenly. Six white people and six black people. Let's let the trial begin. The trial begins with opening remarks. Egan goes first as the prosecutor for the case. In his opening statement, he laid out the state's theory. Basically, that Tommy drove Eunice to the store that night, killed Eunice first, and then when her parents arrived, Tommy killed them as well, all before Charlie Mays arrived at the store. Then, Charlie and Felton Thomas arrive, and Tommy shows up, asks the guys if they want to go shoot guns at the Orange Grove. They go and return to the store, do some trying to break into the store to get access because Tommy doesn't have his key. So they leave the store, go to Tommy's house to get a key. Tommy encounters Edward Williams waiting for him there still and says, hey, keep waiting, Ed. And then they go to the store and Thomas is feeling uneasy when they return to the store and he leaves. And then Tommy lures Charlie into the store and kills him. Then Tommy meets Edward Williams back at his house and rides in Edward Williams' truck to the store together. And Tommy attempts to lure Edward Williams into the store and kill him, but Williams escaped. Reportedly, it wasn't one of those great examples of oratory that one hears about in great speeches of legal history. But it was the first time that it was really all laid out and put together. And the, the pieces, you know, it, it, it's... When you hear it all together, it's making more sense than when you hear it fragmented. I'll give it that. Even though I think it makes zero sense at all. But it, other than the bits and pieces that have been coming out in the paper, when it's gelled together into a mold, it's, it got something that looks like something. Whereas before, you got all these pieces of just stuff flying out there. And I think there was probably a lot of confusion about what the heck was actually going on in this case until 
That was all tied together in the opening statement. The defense's opening had a little more passion. Defense attorney Hadley described Tommy as a man who had everything on Christmas Eve 1975, only to wake up on Christmas Day having lost it all. The defense painted Shirley Mays as a robber, if not a killer, and Eunice and her parents, you know, they had just went to the store at the wrong moment in time. And this is where I'm going to leave you. I know it was a short one, but next episode, we will cover the case presented by the prosecution. And if you guys are liking what you're hearing, try following the podcast. I mean, Nicole did, so maybe you should too. Till next time.